Hi, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage, the podcast that takes you into the world of the musicians of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today, we'll be exploring music written for the big screen. What is it like to play famous film soundtracks and gaming music? I'm joined by piccolo player Stuart McElwam and violinist Kate Birchall. Welcome, Kate, and great to have you back with us, Stuart. Hi, Yolanda. Great to see you again. Nice to be back. Now, I understand that the LPO has recorded lots of film soundtracks from Lawrence of Arabia to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. What's special about recording film soundtracks, Stuart? Well, apart from the fact that you get paid more money for doing that than virtually anything else we do. It was one um, of my questions. Good. um, (laughs) Obviously, there's quite a lot of um, kudos in being involved in a project like that. And um, as famous as we are for being, you know, a classical symphony orchestra, it's a great thing for the orchestra's name to be attached to, for example, something like Lord of the Rings, which is probably one of the, the most famous mm. film projects of the last couple of decades. It gets our name out to a whole load of different groups of people that possibly wouldn't be ever listening to us in our normal classical format. Yeah. And for you, Kate, what's the main difference from performing symphonies in a concert hall to recording film and game music? Well, it's a very different atmosphere because obviously there's no audience in the room. Yes. But equally, there's there's a lot of pressure to nail it in a very short space of time. So it's not without its own pressures. For me, actually, Lord of the Rings, um, the third film, the, the Return of the King, was the first work I did after I'd accepted the job with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, no pressure then, yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine my very first day turning up at Abbey Road Walking in that door for my first day of work was really something special. In Abbey Road, you have this dichotomy of a super high-tech control room with the latest kit. But equally, they've got the original parquet floor. They have the acoustic sails in the ceiling that look a bit like a washing line left over from the (laughs) 1950s. So that acoustic is obviously very important to them, that they're they're not really messing around with it. When you're playing music for a trilogy you've already known the success of the films that have come before what was sort of going through your mind as you were sort of prepping and getting yourself ready to to perform this well there's very little you can do to prepare really because you don't have access to the music until you arrive at the studio and that's often because it's still being written until the very last minute because the composer will be working alongside the the film production. Of course, I didn't think of that, yes. So that's very unusual because normally as a string player, there's so many notes to learn for a symphony concert, we would be practising in advance before the rehearsals. But for a recording session, that's often just not possible. Is there a a form of rehearsal that happens? I mean, if you're turning up at Abbey Road, there's not a lot of uh, spare time and money to really start rehearsing and getting into sort of the, the finer bits of the music. Yeah, so basically it's a sight reading exercise a lot of the time you just don't know what's going to be on your stand when you get there there might be virtually nothing or there might be an absolute sea of notes certainly with with lord of the rings the style of the music that um howard shaw was writing for those films Mm. wasn't quite as busy shall we say as some film scores can be you know i mean obviously there's a lot of very dark things going on in the tolkien story So the music was quite often slow and uh, atmospheric. So 
music like that, you know, it, it doesn't really require a lot of preparation. You can read it quite yes. easily. But generally speaking, I think a lot of experienced film composers know what the process is and they've probably scored many films before and they know what works and what doesn't work in the environment of, of people having to get to grips with, with their sure. music in a very short space of time. So they, they don't write anything that's really, you know, that would need <laughs> weeks <laughs> of practice to play, you know. What was the experience of playing the iconic Shire theme in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings soundtracks? Well, obviously, the whole project, you know, sort of spanned 10 years with gaps in between, you know. So mm. when we turned up for the first of The Lord of the Rings, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring, nobody had ever heard any of those tunes that are now so familiar to virtually anybody. You know, I can play that theme and anybody anywhere, whether they're into music or not, recognises it, you know. Yeah. They're like leitmotifs from a, a Wagnerian opera. I mean, I think a lot of people have used that model when they're representing different characters. Everybody has their own little theme, you know. Obviously, they became very, very familiar to us. And of course, when we came to do the next two films, a lot of the same themes were still there because the characters were still in those films. For the second and the third film, it was all really quite familiar territory. Kate, when you're recording these pieces, are you seeing the film at the same time or is it just about the music, your sight reading, you're, you're in it and performing together? So no, we're not seeing the film as we're recording it. That would probably be too distracting. <laughs> what we are doing, which is different to the concert hall again, is wearing a set of cans. Yes. And this is like a chunky kind of 80s headphone, well, it certainly is in Abbey Road, but with one side cut off Aha. so that you can hear the click track in one ear and you can hear the orchestra in your own sound in, in your other ear. I mean, I hate performing with click tracks. Um, anyway, you're used to looking at the conductor and feeling your tempo and feeling the wave in the music. Is that distracting in itself? It feels a bit of a straitjacket because <laughs> normally music is a living, breathing thing. And yes. even if you tried to play it twice exactly the same, it just wouldn't be. No. It, it's a natural process. So to put this click track on and play precisely with it, I mean, it's a very good discipline. I think every musician should be able to do this. Yes. But as I say, it does feel a little bit straitjacketed at times. And just for our listeners as well, that click track is the metronome. It's the beat and the pulse of the music. And I guess it all has to be in time to, to work with the edits and, and the, everything that comes after creating the music. When preparing for this process, though, you know that a, a film score is coming up. You know where you need to be. Is there anything that you do personally to prepare yourself for music that you don't know what you're going to be faced with, Stuart? Well, to be honest, there's not really very much you can do. Obviously, mm. you know, one needs to be get there in plenty of time. The one thing you don't want to be is late for a film session because that goes down really badly. It's pretty bad to be late for anything. But the amount of money that's clicking away every minute in a recording studio when you've mm. got all those people there waiting to record and if they can't start because somebody's late, well, then that's that's not great. So generally speaking, I would probably get to a film session much earlier than I would get to a normal LPO rehearsal. Right. A, so that you get to see the music that, that might or might not already be on your stand and get nice, fully warmed up so that you know that the, the red light could possibly go on within the first five or 10 minutes. So if the session started at, at 10.30, you know, you could be recording by quarter to 11. So you've got to be up to speed and warmed up and ready to go really from, from the minute off. 
And where does this fit within your schedule? I've, I've got to know uh, a lot of your colleagues and yourselves and got to understand, you know, how the schedule works. And you could be rehearsing other repertoire. You might um, be getting ready to go on tour. Maybe your instruments have already been sent off. I mean, I know the logistics is very well figured out. But how does a sort of a recording like this fit into your schedule? And sometimes are there clashes, Stuart? Sadly, the reality is the way film music is now scheduled less and less of it is actually coming to the regular symphony orchestras mm. just because it's very, very difficult to schedule. Yeah. And also, a lot of the film companies, they want to have more flexibility about when they record. So when we did Lord of the Rings, you know, the dates were set months in advance, mm. so we could put them into our schedule. Unfortunately, now, just because of the way the industry works, the music is always the last thing to be done. Yes. So the film is is short, it's edited, uh, so they know how long, exactly how long it's going to be and, and what the length of the, the musical cues are going to be. But the film studios, they want to sort of have flexibility. Well, we might do something this week or we might do something next week sort of thing, you know, mm. which means it's really difficult for, you know, a full-time symphony orchestra like the LPO, to get into its schedule. We still do get bits and bobs, but the days, I think, of the Lord of the Rings project have, have sadly probably gone, you know. The musical budget for that film was unbelievable. I mean, they spent so much money on it, and I think finances are much tighter these days, and generally film studios want to get music recorded in a shorter period of time. Mm. They might be using, you know, less players or... I mean, for example... When we did The Lord of the Rings, I mean, the first film, they basically booked the entire orchestra every day for like two or three weeks. Wow. And quite often, I know personally, because I was, you know, I'm not playing an instrument that's always being used. Yeah. I would um, go all the way up to Watford Town Hall for six hours of sessions and I didn't play a note. But you'd still have to be paid for that day. Yeah. But, you know, so that's the way they, they did it. They just booked the entire orchestra. So they might have wanted to suddenly go to another queue, but, you know, they ended up spending a lot more time on one piece of music mm. than, than they, they had imagined. But gradually, as the project went on, they got a little bit wiser to that and they were looking <laughs> to see exactly what they needed on each day. So there were some days when they were very careful that they, in actual fact, they didn't need eight horns that day. They only yes. needed two, you know, so... But... It is very difficult to schedule if because it's it's coming in at the last minute a lot more now. But basically, the reality is most of the film music that's recorded in London now is done by a freelance group of players who do nothing else. Yeah. And they just sit around waiting for a phone call and this orchestra comes together. And the other thing is that they they can be booked at very short notice, but they can also be unbooked at very short notice if they suddenly decide, oh, we don't need an orchestra that week. Kate, you, you spoke earlier that, you know, there's no audience there. What What is that like? I guess you're more familiar with it now with the, the past year that we've had, but what is it like not having the audience there, but also you know that the audience that will hear this music eventually is so vast. What does that feeling like? I mean, there's definitely a difference because at the moment we have our general rehearsal in the afternoon mm. and then we still play a concert at the regular time, which is then filmed by, by cameras. But it still feels like an occasion. <laughs> so, you know, you do have that edge of adrenaline, especially when a camera kind of looms in to do a close up on your particular instrument or yes. something. I mean, thankfully, I'm a string player, so I don't have huge solos to do most of the time. 
But I do feel for some of my colleagues who are playing under a lot, a lot more pressure than usual yes. because of this intense focus of the camera. And do you ever have that fan moment where you know that you're performing a piece of music that you all get to enjoy as a consumer too because of the movie, but also, I mean, you'll get to share that with friends and family and anyone who knows you that you were part of this process? Oh, absolutely. Um, my partner's a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. So for him, the pinnacle of my career is, is doing that Return of the King soundtrack. You know, forget Carnegie Hall in New York <laughs> or playing Tristan at Glyndebourne, you know, that is the ultimate for him. I love yeah. that. Oh, and that, I mean, that crossover appeal of the orchestra and keeping the orchestra relevant to audiences nowadays is something that is as important, isn't it? Um, especially for the orchestra as a whole and the brand. Something we've, we've done, which is really interesting, is sometimes we play along to a film. So the film is showing behind us on yes. stage and we're playing the soundtrack live. And I think that's brilliant for audiences because they actually see the nuts and bolts of what has gone into that, that soundtrack. Yes. Because, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. When I'm watching a film, I don't really think about the music very much. It's all part of the atmosphere and the action. But to sort of physically see it on stage, for instance, in Lord of the Rings, they actually take these chains and kind of crash them into the, the grand piano to get some of the special effects. Wow. I think it's the Uruk High music that, that's used for. And then these enormous pieces of sheet metal, which the percussionists are, are hitting. So to see that visually in front of the film is quite something for an audience. Wow. And uh, for you, Stuart, in your experiences, having the screen present, I don't know, either recording to the screen, have you ever had the experience where you're seeing what you're recording to? Yeah. I mean, the whole way films, soundtracks have been recorded has changed over the last 30 years. Mm. I mean, as technology has moved on, the process has moved on with it. Sure. So, for example, in a recording studio for a film session, there would have been a big screen at the back of the orchestra. So unless you turned round, you wouldn't be looking at it. Right. But it was for the conductor to see. Mm. So he would be timing the cue that he was recording with the image on the screen in front of him and there would be this thing called a streamer which is a line that moves across the screen that tells him when the end is coming so they'd be conducting away and they'd actually have to manually try and time and sync it wow with that so that was always the, the traditional original way of doing it but of course now as technology has moved on they've got a little television screen in front of them and it's counting down all sorts of timings and and there's also a metronome pulsing away on it as well so that yeah. they so everything is is laid out with a an electronic framework of of how long it takes what what the speed will be so the conductor's looking at that now and is getting much more information about how to sync yes. what he's recording with the image and the other thing that's happened recently is that most film soundtracks that are recorded now are not recorded by the whole orchestra at the same time. Because you can track things and record them and layer them, yes. It's called stemming. And so what happens is you turn up at Abbey Road and the whole orchestra will be there. And the composer, who quite often is the conductor as well, plays through all the cues for that day with the whole orchestra to, to hear it, to get a sound. Yeah. And they also record it as well in a sort of uh, a draft version. They have a break, they listen to it and they decide that they, they've got the right orchestration that they want, the right sounds and everything. And then basically they keep the strings 
and they send the wind, brass and percussion away for about three hours. Mm. They record the strings on their own. Just the string parts, yeah. And then they all go home. Then the wind come back in and it's just the woodwind in the studio yes. and they record all their cues. And then the same process with the brass and then they put the percussion on last, which is n- in no way, from a playing point of view, as satisfying as being in the no. studio and hearing the full thing going on, you know. With Howard, when Howard Shaw, when he did the first Lord of the Rings films, he was writing a slightly different style of music to what he had written previously. And he would quite often change the orchestration during the day. Interesting enough, I just um, did a, a little session the other day for a guy who's just starting out in the film and TV music business. And this business of doing a, a version before you actually get to the studio with the live musicians, what he's doing is he's got a piece of technology software where yeah. he's recording every instrument on every note yeah. at every dynamic. So he's got a sample of every sound that every instrument makes. Then he can use that to make a mock-up of mm-hmm. what it is he wants to then record live in a studio. So rather than having a keyboard or an electronic version he'll know exactly what it's going to sound like in terms of colour, instrumentation, orchestration. And I think it's a sort of technique that's becoming more and more widely used. Not that they end up using that for for the final product. The musicians still get to go and record it live because there's never, ever going to be a substitute for that, thankfully. How is that experience where you have the composer in there with you and, um, you know, they're editing along the way and you've or you sat down, you've been able to read through the music. Again, you're sight reading anyway. Is that easy to to do, to just sort of be at their beck and call, so to speak? It is quite hard on your attention span because, you know, maybe you've been sat there for an hour waiting for them to rewrite the parts. Mm. Somebody's running around photocopying them and then they're distributing them around the orchestra. And then bang, you've got to be right back into the zone. And you might have sort of cooled down a little yeah, bit absolutely. in that time and this kind of thing. So it's very much a mental concentration that you have to be able to switch on and switch off just like that. And this must happen a lot for the strings, especially as well. Do you prefer sort of performing together as an ensemble or have you had a, that experience where you've had to record it in stems? Not so much because I'm in the second violin section and sure. we tend to work as a team, sort of 14 of us together. Um, Howard Shaw used to use some very interesting textures, though, that I hadn't really come across before. And it's a sort of organised chaos, if you like. Yeah. Um, so rather than specifying every single note we needed to play very, very fast, which would be difficult to achieve in studio conditions, he would write these, he called them manifestos, where he would specify like a group of notes and a style in which we had to play it. But we, it was literally every man for yourself. Wow. So we weren't trying to play together, which is what we normally do. Yes. It, it was, as I say, this kind of controlled chaos where we were all doing our own thing, but it would create incredibly exciting textures that were very distinctive, actually. Have you noticed any trends in the way that composers are writing for orchestras for film and gaming? It goes back, actually, to about the 1970s when the Star Wars trilogy, the first of those films, came out and John Williams wrote what was almost a recreation of a classic Hollywood film score. Yes. You know, a swashbuckling, you know, sort of Errol Flynn-type movie-type film score. You know, something in in the manner of 
Korngold or a Franz Waxman or some of the greatest Hollywood film composers. Obviously, that's become one of the most famous pieces of film music ever written. And it was a trendsetter. You know, all of a sudden, if you were going to have a big science fiction or uh, action movie, it almost then demanded it had to come with with a score like that. Mm. And obviously, I mean, (laughs) John Williams ended up writing most of them. You know, when you think about Superman, all the Raiders, Indiana Jones film and just E.T. and all those things. And I think basically everybody's followed that lead for your typical family blockbuster, as it were. Mm. It's always going to demand, you know, a full orchestra, you know, playing big, romantic, heroic music and very colourful orchestrations. Nothing beats it, for sure. I'm interested, actually, you spoke, Stuart, there about Star Wars and you've had experience of different composers writing for film. What is it like having them there in the room? You know their artistry and you know of them before and then working with them. Have you got anything to share with some of your experiences with these composers? Um, yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to be involved in one of the latest Star Wars films. And, you know, John Williams was somebody I really admired from a very young age. Yeah, to actually then be in Abbey Road Studio Number 1 with the man there in front of me is something I'll never forget. And he was the consummate professional in that he conducted all of his music without click track. Not one note had to be changed Wow. And any of the parts. It was finished, it was polished, it all fitted perfectly. I mean, they recorded the whole score for The Phantom Menace in less than two weeks. And I think there was only one cue that required a clip track. And he did everything, he timed everything himself, and it was always perfect. I'm intrigued by the music for gaming as well. When you said earlier, Kate, that, you know, when you're watching a film, you're not thinking about the orchestra, how many people were playing and all the logistics that went behind it. But even less so when you're playing a a computer game, you're not really thinking. And I have to say, even in my mind, sometimes, am I even thinking that an orchestra is used, are real instruments used for gaming? Have you had an experience in a recording for computer games? We recorded an album for X5, which was the, the greatest computer games. So that also involves some quite old computer games where the sound would literally have been electronically generated. Yes. And they were actually really hard to play because they were created with, with no acoustic instrument in mind whatsoever. And somebody has translated that into something for an orchestra to play. But they really were awkward things to play and often very fast. Yes. So they were some really stressful recording sessions. In 2012, for the Olympic Games, you recorded 205 national anthems. What was that experience like, knowing where these were going to be heard? And also, do you have any favourites? It was quite a small, a smaller orchestra. How many people? It was probably about 50 you know, yeah. as opposed to our normal... I love how that's small. That's beautiful. Well, I mean, um, yeah, about 50 as opposed to our normal 85, you yes. know, uh, or more. So again, you know, there was a lot of a lot of repetition, but we had to try and work through them pretty quickly, you know. Mm. 
we actually, it sort of became a sort of almost like a, a geography competition, you know, working out where some of these places were, you know, that have their own anthems. And just the the huge variety in what could be a national anthem, again, was, yes. was really interesting. And South American ones, they all sound like they've just been plucked out of some Italian opera, you know. <laughs> I remember watching the ceremonies and, I mean, they were recorded so wonderfully, but some of them were very flowery, weren't they? It's amazing. They were. Recording the... The UK anthem mm. was very special because it was a brilliant Olympics for Great Britain, you know. Seeing Bradley Wiggins getting his gold medal and then thinking, hang on a minute, that music that's playing behind, yes. I'm actually, I'm playing in that. Oh. I, I had a small little part of their success in a way, you know. <laughs> it was stunning, honestly. And um, yeah, I think even more so, I did feel that the, the National Anthems had an extra emotion to them, especially for, mm. the, for the 2012s. And it, that does come within the performance from the orchestra. Uh, so no, thank you very, very much. These recordings that you've been doing, amazing recordings that you've been doing in the past year for Marquee TV. Does it feel more natural now, Kate, to sort of perform what you would normally be doing on stage to an audience in the theatre, to the cameras? Has it got any more normal? There's part of me that actually loves sitting in the dark. Um, Because of all the lighting effects they're using, we're basically using much reduced light with just the music stands lit. Yes. And there's something about playing in the dark that really hones you into to listening. So you've got much less visual distraction going on and it, I think it makes you more sensitive, if anything. And I really like that. So ah. it could be quite a shock to get back on the concert stage with the bright lights again. Um, yes. I'm not really looking forward to it. That's a really interesting perspective. I haven't heard that yet. But yes, the intimacy of of the music, even though it's still so grand, it must be quite a nice and personal experience. I'm involved in one of the LPO's um, education and community projects, uh, working with Leonard Cheshire Disability and the Garwood Foundation. And they're loving the fact that our concerts are on television at the moment, because we often go to their centres and create music with them. But it's very difficult for them to get to a concert hall on a regular basis. So to just be able to turn on every week, they're really enjoying. So I think it's great that this year, in a way, has made us more accessible than we have been previously. And I really hope that we find a way of keeping going with some televised um, concerts in the future, even when we're back with our live audience. That is so touching, actually. Yes, you forget about the people that can't get to see you in person. And actually, you know, the sound is recorded so well and the lighting, uh, that it really does, it's a very intimate performance, but you really do get the sense of the full orchestra, which is, is lovely and must be a great experience for so many. And I guess on the flip side of that, you're going to have a whole new cohort of of audience members that are flocking to the theatre when they can because they've been able to experience you digitally during this time. Hopefully, yes. yes. <laughs> and also, I think internationally, I mean, certainly within my own family, my parents in Liverpool have been able to watch every week, um, family in Dublin, and apparently we're getting a lot of hits over in America. So if we are ever able to tour again, then that should help with our audience numbers abroad too. Definitely, definitely. And you have painted a very lovely picture and very organised picture of these recordings. You know, literally you turn up on time, even early if we can, Stuart, I've made a note of that. And then, you know, you've looked through the music, red lights on, click track in the ear, we record, you go home. Has there been any 
disaster recordings that you can remember or sort of moments or mistakes that you just thought, wow, I didn't know that that was going to happen or wasn't expecting that. Stuart? When we were recording the music for the second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers, basically, you know, Howard would come over from America and he would stay on American time and he'd book into the Dorchester Hotel and what he would do is the, the recording sessions were always afternoon and evening. And then he'd go back to the Dorchester and he'd write some more music until about, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And then, then he'd go to sleep, you know, and then he'd wake up about midday or whatever and he'd start his American timed day all over again. But, you know, he was working flat out and he's a, a vulnerable human being like us all, you know. Yes. And, during the second film, he got completely exhausted after a couple of weeks. And he just said, I can't do any more. And we had like a whole week's worth of sessions that had to be had to be cancelled just because he was so exhausted. Wow. He, he, he needed to have a break. It wasn't just the physical act of doing it. He had to have the, the creativity as well. You know, mentally and physically, he just run into a brick wall, you know. So there was a whole quite a few weeks where where we had to put the whole project on hold. And as a result, we had a couple of free weeks yeah. that we were supposed <laughs> And then, of course, they wanted to start recording again. But by that time, we were back into our, our schedule of concerts at the Festival Hall. And we ended up just slotting in Lord of the Rings sessions here, there and everywhere we could. And for about two or three weeks, the schedule was absolutely crazy. It was like three session days. I mean, it, it could have been worse, you know. I mean, uh, yes. it was it was a very busy time, but uh, that was the only time when it didn't sort of really happen as it had been originally planned, you know. Yes. And I suppose that potential is there every time you're working with somebody who's just writing literally the music as you're recording it. If the composer can't write any more music, there's nothing to record. Those backstories, I think they're just so fascinating. And thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. Well, it's been so lovely to speak to you both and just hear a bit more about behind the scenes of, of the music making for film and gaming. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. It's, thank you. it's been fun to do. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Stuart McElwam and Kate Burchill for sharing their experiences of performing film soundtracks, gaming music and being filmed while playing. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. And thanks so much for listening. I'll see you for the next episode of LPO Offstage. Harmonies Across the Pond will be attempting to connect with London, Berlin and New York. So wish us luck. <laughs>